Some of you may remember that on December the 8th, 1987, Ronald Reagan and the Soviet General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev met at the White House to call to sign what they call the INF Treaty, or Intermediate Range Nuclear Treaty, to describe the many variable checkpoints that would be in this treaty. Reagan used this often used Russian proverb in which really would come to define the kind of president Reagan was. And the proverb was trust, but what? Verify. For five weeks now, we've seen Dr. Luke welcome this trust, but verify approach to who Jesus is as we've gone through Luke. In a way, Dr. Luke has said to us, bring it on. Bring your questions on. Look deeply. Turn over every rock, cross every T, dot every I, because whatever you need to verify about Jesus in order to respond to him appropriately and accurately, he will fulfill it. He's the real deal. There are no flaws in him. He has nothing to hide. He is God in the flesh who has come to take away the sins of the world. Now what happens this morning is Luke continues that same theme of verifying who Jesus is. Matter of fact, if Luke 5, 1 through 11 was our only gospel account of who Jesus was, it would be more, more than is needed to verify who he is. And at the same time that Jesus in a way is, is throwing down the gauntlet, of who he is, he's also, we're seeing this morning, begin to gather his men to train them, to equip them, and to unleash them for the mission. As I said two Sundays ago, when we correctly verify who Jesus is, we respond to him accurately, and we'll see his men this morning do exactly that once they see and verify who he is. So we ask the question this morning, who is Jesus? Let's read verses 5, 1 through 11. And what we're going to see this morning is that these men's lives were changed forever from this one text, which says to you and I, our lives can be changed in the very same way. Starting with verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus, or him, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesenaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out, gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, or to Peter, put out into the deep and let your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. 
And so also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. I love how the message puts that. Instead of catching men, it says, you'll no longer be catching perch and bass, but you'll be catching the souls of men. A familiar passage. So let's see what it says this morning. There's some context here. These massive crowds are now pressing in on Jesus because Jesus has been healing a lot of folks. And the word has spread like wildfire. And if anything in us as humans is that we love to come to God to get our stuff fixed, do we not? And so the crowds are pressing in. He is at the edge of the lake of Gesenaret, or another way, to, another name for it, as we're very familiar with, is the Sea of Galilee, which is fed by the springs of the Jordan River, right where Jesus had been baptized a few chapters ago by John the Baptist. There were two empty boats. The fishermen were washing their nets after fishing all night. And Jesus asked Simon Peter, Take your boat, push it out in the water a little bit on this flat, still lake. And let me use it for a pulpit. And he begins to teach. So as we ask this question, who is Jesus? We look at verses 1 through 3. And Jesus is a God who teaches truth. He is teaching the crowd. The crowd there literally means uh, the curious masses. It says they had come to hear the word of God. And that phrase, the word of God there, literally says the word from God. Luke lets us know that this expresses, this expression, the word from God, stresses not only the source of his words, but also the authority of his words. The crowd is listening to the word that comes from God. The crowd is listening to the source of truth. The crowd is listening to the source of all divine truth. And Luke is telling us here, when Jesus speaks, it is God who speaks. He is teaching about God and man and sin and himself and salvation. And I don't know about you, but as I've studied the Gospels and read the Gospels, many times I have never seen Jesus needing to go to the library. <laughs> he does it because he is the source of all truth. Matter of fact, in John 7, it says about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marvel saying, how is it that this man has this kind of learning when he's never studied? <laughs> See, no one's ever said that about me <laughs> or you. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So everywhere Jesus went, he taught relentlessly. He taught the truth because as Romans 10, Romans 10 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So as we identify and verify Jesus, the first is he is the source of divine truth. When he speaks, 
God speaks. Secondly, we look at verses 4 through 5. And uh, here we have, uh, when Jesus got through speaking, he tells Simon to put his boat out for a catch to go fishing. Now, I've done a lot of fishing in my life, and I like to fish. Okay? I like to fish. But I don't love to fish. Meaning, I don't love just to throw the line out there a thousand times and get no bite. I like to catch fish. So you could call me a catcherman. I love to be a catcherman of fish, not, not a fisherman. Matter of fact, I remember one of my greatest days ever in fishing was I took a group of uh, pro athletes down to Dallas for the Promise Keepers Conference years ago. And the day before, one of the athlete's friends in Dallas, outside of Dallas, had about a 60-acre pond. And we had a little fishing tournament going on, fishing from the banks, about eight of us. Everybody threw $20 in. And the winner that day would get the money. Now, out of that group of pro athletes, guess who had the less money and needed it more? And I said, oh, Lord, help me find the fish. <laughs> and I literally, it's truth, if I ever told it, I stood on the bank and there's two little islands and the wind was blowing this way and it was blowing all the little minnows to me and I stood in that one place and caught 40 bass. Boom. <laughs> and every time I caught one, I went, whoop, 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 whoop. And all the guys around the lake wouldn't know he caught another one. They were so mad and I got all their money. <laughs> I loved fishing that day because by the grace of God, I found the fish. Jesus is a great fisherman because he knows where the fish are. He has divine knowledge of exactly where the fish are. He tells Peter, the professional fisherman who had fished all night and caught nothing, yo, let's take this boat out for a spin. We're going to go catch some fish. From Peter's professional perspective, because he was the expert, he was a professional fisherman. Peter was already fishing when the fish were supposed to bite. At night, when it was cool, when the small minnows or fish would come to the surface. And now, it's in the middle of the day, nearly at noon, in the hot, hot climate they lived in. And Jesus is saying, I want to go fishing. <clears throat> Peter responds to him, verse 5 says, Master which doesn't mean Lord, it means here chief or commander. We, we, he said, Lord, we've done this thing. <laughs> we've done this thing all night. Oh. But out of my respect for you, as a teacher, as the one I'm following, I'll do what you say. At this point, Peter sees Jesus as a spiritual leader not God in the flesh. So again, we say if we don't see Jesus correctly, we don't respond to him, what, accurately. And Peter does that here. So only God, Luke is telling us, can know where the fish are. I'm reminded of Matthew 10 where it says that not one of them, speaking of sparrows, will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing I'm reminded of Luke 12. It says, even the hairs 
on your head are numbered, and he knows how many they are. For some of us, it's not a, a hard job for him to count. I'm reminded of Psalms 121. It says, the protector of Israel does not sleep nor slumber. He knows. He knows everything. So here Luke says, you want to verify Jesus? He is the source of divine truth. Secondly, he knows everything. He is omniscient is the theological word for it. And then thirdly, we go to this third attribute of God, which is power or being omnipotent. Verses six and seven. When they begin to do what Jesus said to do, they put the boats out in deeper waters. It says the nets begin to shred, to pop, to break because there were so many fish. And the only explanation for thousands of fish to all of a sudden swim into their nets because, is because Jesus not only knew where the fish are, but he also had the power to command the fish that he created to go and do what he said do. Jesus is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And only God is all-powerful and omnipotent. So many fish, they said, so many fish, they had to call their fishing partners for help. Yo, we're about to sink. Two boats, 25 to 30 feet long, are about to sink because there were so many fish. All those years of Peter and James and John as professional fishermen, put together 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, they had never seen anything like it. And they knew, Peter knew at this moment, he is dealing with the all-powerful creator of the universe. Reminds me of Job 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I'm reminded of God speaking through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 46. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I, the Lord, will do as he pleases. So we're verifying Jesus. We have the source of divine truth. We have omniscient and omnipotent. All knowledge, all power. And then in verse 8 through 10a, this attribute of holiness jumps in our face. Peter now knew Jesus was not like him. He, he now knew he was in the presence of divine holiness. So, so what Peter does here, he puts it all together. Jesus is a source or is the source of divine truth. He is omniscient, all knowledge. He is omnipotent, all power. And those three come together and scream at Peter, Jesus is God and God is not like me. God is holy. Therefore, Jesus is holy. Remember, fishing is Peter's thing. He's an expert. Fishing is Peter's thing like turkey hunting is my thing. And he knows something fishy is going on here. 
He knows this ain't fishing. When a person knows where all the fish are and a person can make all the fish go and do what he wants them to do, he knows this is not fishing, folks. This is supernatural and only God can operate like this. And he knows he's in the presence of God and he, he knows he's a sinner in contrast to God. Peter has his Isaiah 6 moment here. And this led Peter to the exact place the Lord wanted him. Broken before the Lord. Stunned in the holy presence of God, who is the source of all truth. Who is the source of all knowledge. Who is the source of all power. So the text tells us Peter falls prostrate at the feet of Jesus. And he says, depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord, which is a phrase to recognize God's sovereignty. And this is a proper response. Peter verifies who Jesus is and gives a proper response, depart from me. It's not a confession of his individual sins, but is a recognition of his character, Peter's character, in contrast with the character of God. And the contrast is so great, the only response is that Peter says, go away, I, I don't deserve to be in your presence. Peter's own guilt, his own shame, his own self-consciousness of who he is in light of being in the presence of who God is, says, please leave me alone. Peter is exposed to a holy God and he wants to avoid this at all costs because the contrast is so great. <clears throat> Job 42 says, Job had a similar response. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Fifthly, this attribute of God, we see mercy in verse 10b. Oh, thank God for mercy, huh? We see here what is so frightening to Peter. <laughs> what is so frightening to Peter is so encouraging to the Lord. At the point where Peter feels the most alienation is also the very point that Jesus seeks reconciliation. At the point Peter says, go away, is the very point in which Jesus says, come, I want to embrace you. Now you think about that for a moment. In the midst of your sin and your confession as a sinner, at that moment when you feel like you don't deserve mercy is the very point where Jesus says you get mercy. It's so against human nature. Just like Isaiah thought he would be destroyed in the presence of God, Peter very easily could have thought the same thing. He had no idea what might come next. And as the drama builds, Jesus lavishes Peter with mercy. Jesus says, do not be afraid. And when I, when I use that phrase, I mean in an unhealthy way. 
An unhealthy fear of God is do not be afraid and run from me, but have, as the scripture says, this healthy fear of God, which says run and cling to me. I need mercy. Jesus says, you've been catching fish so that they will die. Now you'll be catching men so that they may live. Reminds me of something I read a few weeks ago. It says, religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call dad. There should be great terror in the sinner and great calm in the repentant sinner. Repentant sinners experience great mercy and then they become, check this out, <laughs> they become the most qualified to be used by God as his ambassadors to share the great mercy of Christ with others. We think of the life of the Apostle Paul who said, I am the worst of sinners. He therefore had experienced the greatest mercy and he said, that's what qualifies me to be used by God. And then we see this sixth point here of mission. Verses 10b and 11. Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. If we know anything about God, we know our God is a God on mission. And the method of his mission is men and women. That's how he gets it done, through his people who've experienced mercy. He is a sending God, sending those in whom he gives mercy to be his men and women into a world in need of mercy. Jesus is not starting this program. Jesus is starting an evangelism and discipleship mission by enlisting people who could bear witness to his life and carry on the work, at, carry on the work after he returns to the Father. You and I here today, practically speaking, because these men that we're going to see this morning responded to the call of Jesus. <clears throat> now, speaking of that, those six things define and verify who Jesus is. And then in this text, and what we're doing this morning, and, and I don't know why Luke didn't put these three texts in order. As you can see in the middle of your notes, Luke 5, 1 through 11, 5, 27 through 32, and 6, 12 through 6. Um, some say it was in order, but the bottom line, they're not. But we're going to use all of them together this morning. Jesus is calling his disciples in these three texts. Let me read these two other passages for us quickly. Look at your Bibles 527 through 32. This is another call. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi or Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. 
And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then over in 6, starting in verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he named the apostles. And then he names all of the twelve disciples that we may or may not be familiar with. Now, um, when this happens, look back to Luke chapter 5, 27 through 32, the call of Levi. Here's what we need to understand about this is it was no accident that Jesus calls Levi or Matthew to follow him. Levi is a crook social outcast and is exactly the type of person Jesus wishes to minister to. That should make us all say amen. Levi was a tax collector that was held at the lowest of the low in their culture in terms of social status. The call of this man to follow Christ will cause great controversy and will challenge every social and cultural norm of the day. How in the world can a man like Levi, how the man, how in the world can a man like Levi be the recipient of the grace and mercy of God? And we see there, here's what Levi does. He throws a feast by opening up his home to other crooked uh, tax collectors. Now, that's an idea for us. How about us using our home in some way to what? To introduce others to Jesus. That's exactly what Levi does here. He brings his fellow crook social outcast tax collector friends over to introduce them to Christ. Straight up party of sinners sitting around a table of food as Jesus answers life's biggest questions for them. Who is God? And compared to who is man, what is sin? Who is Christ? How is a man or woman saved? And then in verse 31, Jesus makes it crystal clear who it is that he calls to himself. It's those who are sick and needy and who need a Savior. And then we see in the third section here, Luke 6, 12 through 6, of Jesus calling his disciples. At this point in the text, there is this huge opposition growing toward Jesus. And here's how Jesus responds to opposition. (laughs) So different than us, so different than me. He doesn't go fight the opposition. He goes off and he prays all night to his father. And he asks his father to give him wisdom and who to choose as his men. He prays before he acts. And if there's been anyone in this body this morning who has failed more at that, it is me. Remember Peter? Remember when they came to arrest Jesus? Remember he cut the soldier's ear off? Wouldn't it have been nice if he had prayed before he acted? (laughs) 
It's a great model for us. And then Jesus chooses these men and he forms his leadership team in order to equip them for the mission. Now I want you to look on your outline a minute. In these three texts of where Jesus is calling his disciples, there are some themes, three things that are common in every passage. <clears throat> Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is with them. And they left everything and followed him. Now, I want you to look in the passage of Luke 6, 12 through 16. In the first two passages, we see it's pretty overt that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But in Luke 6, 12 through 16, it's not in our face. So let me remind you of who these men were. These 12 disciples, when Jesus called them, none of them were impressive. There were no key leaders from the synagogue. They were just common laborers. They were not wealthy, except for maybe Matthew, who lived off the money of others. C.S. Lewis called them a ragged collection of souls. We know from the Gospels, they were impulsive, they were temperamental, they were easily offended, they were jealous, they had great racial prejudice toward their culture and toward people in their culture. Remember John chapter four, the Samaritan woman at the well, as Jesus spoke to her, the disciples are going to get something to eat and they come back and they see Jesus speaking to this hated half-bred Samaritan woman and they say to themselves, why would he be talking to her? They were slow to comprehend spiritual things. Does that encourage you? Three years with Jesus and they fighting over who's going to be first at the Last Supper. Acts 4.13 says they were unlearned and common. But they were honest men willing to confess their need teachable and pliable in the hearts and hands of the master. And here's what Jesus did. Jesus staked his whole ministry on them. Matter of fact, he sacrificed the masses and focused his time on the 12 in order that the masses may one day be reached. And that was the genius of his strategy. So here's what I want to do. In light of all that, I want to take an extended so what. But I want to prime us for this so what. Because just as Jesus has been calling his men to himself, I want to give you an opportunity to think about responding to the call of God biblically that is in this text. So we ask the question, in light of Jesus' attributes and action, he calls us to leave everything and follow him. Now, if you're like me, you look at those three things that are common in all these texts, and immediately you go, Jesus is a friend of sinners. I know what that means. Jesus is with them, meaning impact is made up close, not from afar. It takes the presence of people on people for genuine life change. That's why we do community groups. We understand that. But what we don't know, what does it mean very practically, biblically, 
to leave everything and follow Christ. Leaving everything and following him is a common image in the New Testament of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's normal. There's no, there's no exceptional believer. This is normal. This is the standard. It has this idea of making a break with your past life, with your past priorities, and with what you value most. If they are in contrast with following Christ, and it means replacing all of this with following Christ. Dr. Daryl Bach, an expert on the book of Luke, put it this way. He says, Jesus is now the center of one's life and everything revolves around him. Does that mean you need to leave your vocation like they did? I just want to let that sit a minute. Maybe. But more times than not, it means that you now take Jesus to your vocation. Jesus wants, at the end of the day, to be our greatest treasure. And whatever challenges him for that, which are whatever idol jumps in the way of that, he wants to work that out of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. To die to oneself is to see only him who goes before and no longer the road which is too hard for us. To die says he leads the way, keep close to him. It is this picture of leaving everything and following Christ, of getting it's, 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 like a, it's like a race car or a horse that gets behind another horse or a race car. And that first horse or that runner is shielding the wind, all the hardness there. And it's, it's putting our nose right on the back of the spine of Christ and grabbing hold of his belt loop, if you would, and staying right there with him. Because at this place, I can't see all that's in front of me. And all that's in front of me is hard and scary and tough. And that's, that's life. And if I'm doing this and I see what's coming, I panic. I freak out. But when I stay right here and I put my nose on the spine of Christ and I just follow him, he knows everything. He is the source of divine power. He is all-knowing, all-powerful. He is holy and he is merciful and he is leading me. And where he leads me is better than I, where I would have led myself any day, any time, any place. That's what it means to leave everything and follow Christ. So there's three particular calls here. Three particular calls. The first one is the call to trust Christ. That simply means when you put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see your sin and you see the righteousness of Christ. And the Bible says this great exchange takes place. Christ takes on your sin and you take on the righteousness of Christ himself. And the Bible uses this phrase 
of being in Christ 165 times. It is the way the Bible talks about salvation. You place your faith alone in Christ alone for salvation alone. But here's what we don't know. When you and I trust Christ, see, see these three calls here, the call to trust Christ, the call to surrender, and the call to reproduce spiritually, they're not separate calls. <laughs> they're all in one. When, when Jesus saves a man or a woman, he is calling them to all three. So he knows that because he knows everything. But on, on, on our side, all we know at first is I have trust, trusted in Christ. But we don't know that other calls are simultaneous. So the second call, which really happens when we trust Christ, is this call to surrender. This is the leave everything and follow him call. This is what Paul meant when he said, I am a slave to Christ. And this is not a one-time event. It is a lifetime of surrender over and over as we follow Christ, nose to the spine, and grow in maturity. But it does say, in our own hearts, it says, I'm done following myself. How has that worked for me? Not well. I'm done following the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'm going to put myself, and this is key, I'm going to put myself in environments intentionally, intentionally, in order to grow, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to be discipled, to be poured into, to be mentored. I am done playing the Sunday spiritual game of show up and listen to a talking head, a big one with no hair, and go home. It is following Christ from the heart. It says he is the master and I am the slave. He says he is the potter and I am the clay. It is a cry to the living God to take me, mold me, make me into the person you created me to be. I remember very vividly coming to Christ, 1982, October 7th in Belt Dorm. And by the end of the year, the last week of the year, December, I was at a Christmas conference with 1,500 college students, Christian college students. I didn't know there were that many Christian college students in the world, let alone at one place at one time. And I remember Dr. Bright in the last night giving a message, something like this. And I remember he challenged us. He said, to write in our Bibles this date, December 30th, December 31st, 1982, I became a slave to Jesus Christ. And I wrote those words in the front of my Bible, not knowing what they meant. But here's what I did know. I knew I was tired of Jeff. I was tired of leading the way. And I needed to follow someone. Now, look, <laughs> there was a lot that's taken place since 1982. But there was a stake put down in my heart when I felt like he had an eject on God and Christ in the mission. He took me back to that night and he said, you can't. You are slaves to me. Follow me. Nose to the spine. John 6 says, where else should I go? That's what Peter said. I have, I have nowhere else to go. Only you only you have words of life. This person is hungry, available, teachable, 
faithful, learning how to think and feel and live like a Christian. It even says, as Jenny and David said yesterday, though you slay me, I will praise you, nose to the spine. And then lastly, there's this call to reproduce. Again, they all happen at once, but we don't know it when we trust Christ. But there's this call to reproduce. You've grown in such a way that your heart desires to give away what you've been given by God and others. To leave a spiritual legacy so that when you're dead, you're still alive to those you've influenced for Christ. Spiritual reproduction or discipleship, being a discipler of others, is not some special call. It's a way of life, an intentional way of life. Discipleship or spiritual reproduction is not a gift of the Spirit. It's a command for every believer. Every Christian has an opportunity with a few people to teach them what he has learned about Christ. Here's how I would summarize what I've said. Every Christian should be helping unbelievers become believers by sharing Christ. That is making a disciple. Every Christian should be helping other believers grow into more maturity. That is making a what? Disciple. And every Christian should be seeking to get help for themselves, for others, so they can keep on growing. That is making a disciple. So with that extended, so what? Here's what we want you to do this morning. We want you to take a minute to consider those three calls. One is if you've never trusted Christ, you're not sure, and you know you're a sinner, and Jesus has been verified this morning to who he is, That's your first step. Secondly, you've trusted Christ, but you haven't grown much. You haven't been very intentional. You've been very apathetic spiritually. You've played the spiritual church game. And you're like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm tired of me. I want to be all in. It's a heartfelt plea to God. The call to surrender. And then for many of us, we've grown in such a way, but one thing we haven't done is give our life away to others to help them grow. And you say, you know what? I want to be a reproducer. I want to begin to be very intentional. Not to eat a whole elephant, but one bite at a time to reproduce the life of Christ in others as people have done for me. So take a minute and answer the call. And if you make that decision, we want to know about it because we want to help you continue to walk in the call that you respond to. So email us at info at fbcrc.org.